Hello and welcome to the latest edition of EdChoice Chats. I'm your host, Jason Bedrick, Director of Policy at EdChoice. And today I am joined by Dr. Kevin Curry-Knight. He is a teaching associate professor at East Carolina University, and he is the author of the book, Education in the Marketplace, which is the subject of our conversation today. Kevin, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Jason. Your book opens with a thought experiment by Murray Rothbard concerning government-run newspapers. What was this thought experiment, and what point was Rothbard making? Yeah, I like this thought experiment a lot, which is why I intro the book with it. So Rothbard was a economist in you know, the 19—I think he started kind of working in the 1960s and 70s. And he was trying to make a point about public education. And so he did this thought experiment, and it goes like this. Imagine that we in the United States create a government-run news service because we want everyone to consume the news. And not only that, but it's tax-supported, and no matter whether you like that news service, you have to support this news service with your tax fund. You don't have a choice. In addition to that, you also have to, for a certain number of hours a day, consume that news service, which you get now, quote-unquote, for free through your tax dollars. And if you want to pay for private news, you can also do that, but you have to ask permission from the state to do it. And the state will tell you whether you have to use the public news service or whether you're permitted to use a private news service. And the point he was trying to make was, I think most people, when they hear that, would have a problem with it. They would think, wow, that sounds like North Korea or something like that. There's a lot of reasons that would be a really bad thing. But he says, if you think about it, that's pretty similar to what we have in terms of our education system today, where we pay tax dollars to support this government system. And we can use a private system if we want. We can use private schools if we want, but we have to ask the government's permission to do it because it's assumed that you're going to go into the public system. And since education is mandatory, most people will choose to go into the public system because their tax dollars support the public system anyway. So the reason I started with this thought experiment was I want people to get a sense for how libertarians see education. So most people see the public education system as not terribly problematic. I think most people who aren't really concerned with school choice don't really have a problem with it. But if you think about it in terms of, well, what would this look like if it were a government news service? I think most people would realize, okay, that's why the libertarian perspective sees a problem with the idea of a government-supported education system or news service or something like that. So it was a fun experiment to begin the book with. Right. And all of the thinkers that you profile in your book, and I should mention from the start that what your book does is it profiles a variety of different thinkers, uh, I would say mostly in the 20th century, who are thinking through what the role of government should be in education. All of the ones profiled in your book are broadly sympathetic to Rothbard's critique of government-run education, although they do differ considerably in their proposed alternatives. Nevertheless, you describe all of them as market libertarians. What do you mean by market libertarian? Yeah, it's most people, I think, who are kind of within the libertarian perspective already in terms of supporting free markets would just say the word libertarian. The problem is that in education, the word libertarian can mean two different things. It can mean either someone who supports, let's say, free markets and kind of liberty in the marketplace. Or it can mean someone who supports the kind of education that gives students freedom. So it's not atypical to see folks within the field of education, for instance, say that Maria Montessori is a libertarian. Even though she didn't really have any ostensible support for like markets, it was more that she wanted a, a, an education system that would support the liberty of students. So 
it was hard to figure out what term to use because if education folks are reading this book and they hear the word libertarian, they're not going to really know which of the two I'm speaking towards. So when I say market libertarians, I mean libertarians in the sense who are kind of pro-market because they want people to be able to choose from a variety of services in the marketplace. And that makes sense because, I mean, you think of Rousseau had his thought experiment. I think it was Emile, right? And Emile is running through the forest and learning that way outside of a traditional classroom. So in that sense, he might be considered a libertarian when it comes to education. But certainly the form of government that he proposed was not a libertarian one. Right, right. Now, many, although not all, of the market libertarians that you profile in your book are uh, proponents or were proponents of school choice policies Mm -hmm. like school vouchers or education savings accounts in which the government subsidizes private education either directly or uh, through public funds or indirectly through tax credits. Yeah. But is every proponent of school choice a market libertarian? That's a great question. Actually, one of the later chapters in my book, which I thought... I created this chapter while I was working on the book is a chapter that profiles school choice advocates who were not particularly sympathetic towards like pro-market libertarian ideas. So, you know, one of the big ones that folks within the school choice movement might be familiar with is Jack Coons and Stephen Sugarman, who were two law professors who wrote a book in, I think, the late 70s called Education by Choice. And they were not particularly pro-market guys. They were coming from kind of a centrist Democrat position. They had a lot of beef, actually, with Milton Friedman, who was a market libertarian. Actually, famously, they had a dispute with him over, uh, they had competing voucher proposals on the ballot in California. That's right. So Sugarman and Coons created this system that allowed for probably more government intervention than many libertarians would be comfortable with. So for instance, their proposal, because it was so focused on kind of racial and socioeconomic equity, Their proposal was like, well, we don't really have a problem paying more in voucher money to students that schools might not readily accept, such as those with more significant disabilities or those that are a racial category that schools might not see as desirable or, you know, might see as harder to educate or whatever that is. Whereas Friedman said, you know, no, government should pay an equal amount to everyone. You know, another thing that I think Sugarman and Coons were more comfortable with was the idea of government playing an active role in supporting and creating public schools when necessary. They were very specific that one of the things they didn't like about some of the libertarian plans were that libertarian plans wanted to abolish public schools, generally speaking. I think Friedman wasn't quite there, but he he was pretty close. Whereas they said, no, we want public schools to be able to compete with private schools. We just want people to be able to get their money and pay it towards private schools if that's what they would choose to do. So they were definitely not market libertarians. Another one in the book, one of my favorites that I wrote about was John Holt, who most people who know his name would know him as kind of a proponent of homeschooling and what's now called unschooling. And Holt really liked the idea of market plans in education like voucher plans. But his motivation was not any sort of you know idea that markets are preferable. His real thought was we want to, he wanted to break what he saw as a cultural stranglehold that traditional conventional schooling has in the United States and elsewhere. And he reasoned that, well, if people are allowed to choose and take their money where they'd like, maybe that stranglehold can loosen a bit. And maybe we can see more radical alternatives come about, like, you know, free schools or democratic schools or something like that. 
So, yeah, the long answer to your question is that no, being school choice probably doesn't mean necessarily that you're a market libertarian. I would say that market libertarians are kind of a subclass of school choice proponents. So before we get back to market libertarianism, what were the arguments for school choice among some of the thinkers on the political left? For example, you mentioned Ted Sizer. Oh, yeah. This is interesting because especially recently, people like Diane Ravitch, Randy Weingarten have kind of tried to link school choice to like a segregationist agenda. And one of the things that I learned and really began to appreciate in my research is that especially on the left, it was actually almost the opposite. Their concern was that the public system was segregating. So a lot of these folks like Ted Sizer and Coons and Sugarman and even John Holt were writing, you know, years after Brown versus Board of Education. And we know that Brown had a big problem being implemented. A lot of states didn't want to implement it. A lot of districts didn't want to implement it. So they essentially didn't really implement it. They took half measures. So what Coons and Sugarman and Ted Sizer and Deborah Mayer, when she did support school choice, wanted to do was use private schools and markets to kind of give the public schools not only competition, but to make it so that the poor had the school choice that the rich already frankly enjoyed. Because the rich folks can kind of move from one area to the next if they want to go to another school. Or they can, you know, pay the tuition for private schools, whereas poor kids and disproportionately minority kids at that point really didn't have that option. So they really wanted to open up that option. And markets and school choice was a way to hopefully begin to integrate and even nudge the public schools to integrate. So that was really their objective. Another objective that especially Ted Sizer had and Deborah Mayer had was they wanted schools to be autonomous. One of the big problems I think everyone who's a proponent of school choice recognizes about the public schools is it's very bureaucratic and top-heavy. So schools really don't have a lot of individual autonomy. And I know that Ted Sizer and Deborah Mayer really hoped that if you opened up markets, you could open up markets to schools that are autonomous, like small private schools could open where the authority for the school lay within that school, not at some far-off district office. Yeah, so it's interesting to note. I think it's actually very important to note today, as you do in your book, that the segregation debate and the school choice debate, you had people on both sides of each debate, right? Right. So you had people, certainly, who were trying to use vouchers as a way to, you know, after the schools were integrated, Right. They said, oh, well, we'll just try to implement this voucher program so that we can have white private schools. Right. But there were also people who were pro-segregation who were trying to prevent the vouchers because they were worried that that was actually going to lead to more integration. Mm-hmm. And I think they right. actually had reason to worry about that because even while all the public schools were segregated, there were private schools, in particular Catholic, but not exclusively Catholic. I mean, think of the Julius Rosenwald schools uh, and others mm-hmm. that, that were integrated even when the public schools were all segregated. Yeah. So it's a part of our history, I think, that is underappreciated and not as well known as it really should be, that there were many of these people that were using the market in order to integrate schools faster than the government was able to do it. Yeah. One of the things that struck me in researching this book and researching, you know, school choice proponents who were libertarian and school choice proponents who were not really market libertarian is that vouchers and school choice, these are tools. They don't come with an intent attached to them. We add the intent. So some people are going to try to design voucher systems or school choice systems 
that segregate, and other people are going to try to design programs that integrate. So, you know, if you look at Coons and Sugarman's proposal, for instance, they took great steps to make sure that schools would integrate. So they went so far as to say that segregationist criteria for, for selecting students should be outlawed. It really depends on how you design the program, you know, whether it results in a more segregationist effect or whether it results in a more integrationist effect. And it's interesting, too, I think that I'd say most of the market libertarians either take as a principle or at least on consequentialist grounds strongly believe in freedom. Whereas the pro-school choice proponents on the left, their main concern really was equality, but it led them to the same place in terms of policy or, or something yeah. close to it. I would say I think that Sizer and Coons and Sugar would agree with this depiction. I think they believed that freedom was the route to equality, that freedom was the best route to get there. If you could design a system that allowed freedom within certain constraints, that would be the better way to get to equality than a state compulsory system. So now, turning back to the market libertarians that your book spends the most time analyzing, yeah. I know that your book goes roughly in chronological order, but I'd actually like to start with Milton Friedman, yeah. not just because he was the founder of the organization that I work for, uh, Ed Choice used to be <laughs> the Milton and Rose Friedman Foundation for Educational Choice, yeah. but also because he and his wife Rose were probably the greatest popularizers of the idea of school vouchers in the late 20th century. I mean, the yeah. idea did not originate with them. We can actually trace it all right. the way back. John Stuart Mill on Liberty in the 1860s was talking about this. Yeah. So even yeah. Thomas Paine was yeah. promoting an idea like this in the late 1700s. Yeah. But Friedman definitely popularized it. What was his argument for school vouchers? Yeah, this is interesting because one of the things I try to do in my book is everyone who I profile in the book was for markets, but they all kind of had their own rationales for why they thought that markets and education were appropriate. Some were utilitarian, some were natural rights-based arguments, others were purely economic arguments. So Milton Friedman was pretty well a utilitarian in terms of his outlook. He was an economist and he wanted to make sure that we crafted policy that would provide the best options for the greatest number of people, roughly. I don't think he said it like that, but he was definitely a consequentialist, if not some sort of utilitarian in that way. So for him, it wasn't so much a principled objection against government like it was for Rothbard. Roth, for Rothbard, government is theft. Therefore, government shouldn't be in education because we don't want theft and, and moral badness in education. Friedman didn't really have those qualms. His argument was more Government doesn't often do the job as well as private industry can do the job. So in all sorts of areas of life, we see that competing firms, rival firms do better. The competitive process means that companies improve, costs go down, quality goes up over time. And essentially, he, he even said that what he did in his article on education, I think it was called The Role of Government in Education, he said what I basically did was I applied economic arguments I had used elsewhere to the field of education. Education wasn't a field that he had particularly wanted to kind of get involved in at first. It was just, he wrote this article because he said, well, you know, these arguments have appeared elsewhere for, for markets. I think they should also apply to education. So let me look and see if they do. And he found that they did. So really one of his later, I think, newspaper articles that he wrote was something to the effect of, let's treat schools like we treat grocery stores. And it really, for him, that's kind of what it was, you know, for the same reasons that markets are valuable in the grocery industry, 
markets are also valuable in the education industry, and education is not a different kind of service towards which these market rules don't apply. Yeah, you often hear people say, well, uh, you know, schools aren't McDonald's. You know, education is different. But it it often amounts to a just special pleading. They can't articulate really how it's different. You know, they'll say it's a public good. And of course, they don't mean it the same way an economist means. Right, right. Yeah, I I think if you made that argument for Milton Friedman, he would say, no, education is not a public good. It's excludable and it's rivalrous. Yes, but but even... It's not a public good, it's a private good. Yes, exactly. But even in the colloquial sense of public good, meaning that, well, this benefits the public, Friedman actually... That's the core of his argument is that, yes, there are these neighborhood effects. Yeah. There are spillover effects, right? But the private school system does it better. Therefore, we should favor it. And not just in terms of, as you mentioned, quality and efficiency, but also that the market provides a greater diversity of educational options than a government-run system would. Yeah, and, and that was one of the things Friedman did very explicitly. And he was one of the first, at least in the field of education, to do this explicitly. He detached the funding role that government might have from the production role that government might have. So he definitely agreed to your point that, yes, there are neighborhood effects or what he called neighborhood effects. Other economists might know them as externalities. There are positive externalities to a good education, but that doesn't mean government has to produce education. It only means that, if anything, government has to fund education and make sure that everyone can receive a certain minimal amount of education. But from there, he said, you know, it yeah, it's markets will produce the best outcomes for the dollars spent than, let's say, a public system would. So, yeah, just because government may have a role to play in funding education, which he was fully on board with, he did not think that, therefore, that meant that government had to produce education. So he, was, he really distinguished between the two in ways that others before him hadn't really done as explicitly. So you'll see that some of the mainstream, what we think of as libertarian think tanks like uh, the Cato Institute or the Reason Foundation are very much in favor of school vouchers and varieties on the voucher like tax credit scholarships and education savings accounts. But there were some libertarians, for example, Rothbard, who were not fans of the voucher idea. I mean, indeed, Rothbard may have been Friedman's fiercest critic. So what what concerned Rothbard about school vouchers and what did he propose instead? Oh, it's funny. Milton Friedman got it from both sides. He got it from Coons and Sugarman for not being supporting government intervention enough, and he got it from Rothbard for supporting it too much. So yeah, Rothbard was, well, he was a hardline anarchist, an anarcho-capitalist or a market anarchist, I guess you would say. And for Rothbard, really, you start with the idea that government is institutionalized theft. Government functions by taking people's money, and if you don't give your money, bad things will happen to you. Right. So if a highway robber were to come, put a gun against your head and say, give me $1,000, and then he gives that $1,000 in the form of a scholarship to a poor kid, you would still say it was immoral. And then Rothbard argues, just because 50% plus one of your neighbors voted to put a gun against your head and take your money, Right. doesn't make this a moral action. Yeah, and and you know for Rothbard it's not a stretch to say that government had no more moral authority than like a street gang has. He just didn't really see that there was a difference. The the government just convinced everyone that they were legitimate. But Rothbard also marries that with an Austrian economist kind of tradition in the you know Ludwig von Mises tradition where one of the bad things about government is they will take and spend money in a way that the market wouldn't have spent that money already. So they, in some ways, produce malinvestment. They spend money where it wouldn't be what you'd say is most highly valued use. So if you add those two together, 
it's really easy to see why Rothbard thought that, you know, we really don't want government involved in education, first of all, because there's a moral problem there. But second of all, because government will kind of distort whatever market could develop within education. I think Rothbard believed that private charity and private initiative would be enough to make sure that everyone was roughly educated. And I mean, there's some debate on that. I mean, historically, the record is, you know, the United States and the colonies before it were pretty well educated without a whole lot of government intervention. But when we talk about how well educated they were, they didn't use our standards of measurement. It was a lot lower of a standard of measurement. So there is some, you know, legitimate debate on whether industry and charity would be enough. But he also criticized Friedman on the idea that if you allow government to fund education, you also, by effect, give government the authority to accredit education, simply because whoever's paying for a particular service in some ways has the right to check to see if that's a legitimate service. You know, I only want my money to be going to legitimate schools that I endorse because it's my money. So his concern was that Friedman was letting in a lot more government intervention simply by allowing them to fund schools. You're going to open up government accreditation, which now likely means you're going to have government dictating, here's the kind of curriculum private schools can have. And at that point, at least as far as Rothbard was concerned, you have a lot more interference than is justified. So he just wanted to keep government, the state, and education separate. Now, another anarchist that you profile in your book, and the earliest figure that you profile, is yeah. Albert J. Nock, who lived yeah. from 1870 till uh, 1945. Yeah. He was a very strong critic of government-run education, but he was also skeptical that the market could provide education well either. So what were his concerns and what were his proposed alternatives? Sure. So for those who don't know who Nock is, Nock was a newspaper journalist and he wrote several books. So he made his living as an author, basically. He wrote for magazines like The Freeman. And he was, I guess, what you might call a paleoconservative, although I think in retrospect, we can call him a libertarian. I kind of started with him almost by accident. When I was writing the book, and I was starting to write this book, I made a list of all the figures, libertarian figures who wrote on education, because I figured, okay, I'll need a list of people to go to. And, you know, Albert J. Nock has a reputation as a libertarian, and he actually wrote a book on education called A Theory of Education in the United States. So I figured, oh, okay, this will be great. I'll start with him. And the more I read, the more I realized that as anti-government as he was, and he was certainly up there in terms of his disdain for government and the state, he was in some ways equally suspicious that a market could provide education. So here's how his argument ran. So in terms of being against the state, he relied a lot on the sociological works of Franz Oppenheimer, a sociologist who wrote a book called The State. And for Oppenheimer, there's two and only two methods of exchange. There's voluntary exchange and there's forcible exchange. Markets use voluntary exchange and governments use only forcible exchange. They extract money, they extract wealth, they do what they want to do, and they don't have to ask people's permission. So Nock was very much against that, almost for the same reasons Rothbard later was against the state. But Albert J. Nock was also, I guess in present terms, we'd call him an elitist. He believed that only a certain kind of person, a certain kind of superior person, was capable of being truly educated. So everyone is capable of being trained. So he thought that you know most people can get training to do something, like to do some vocational thing or whatever. Training isn't really a problem. Education, he thought, and by that he meant you know reading the great books and and thinking 
big ideas and doing intellectual work and stuff like that. He thought that that was a special group of people that could do that. And education, at least the kind of education he wanted to see, was really hard work. It was something that you had to work very hard at. You know, reading the great books and thinking big ideas is a, is a difficult endeavor, and not everyone's going to be up for the challenge. So as pessimistic as he was that the state could offer true education, he was very pessimistic that markets could offer true education. Because if people, most people, had their way, Knox thought they would prefer the cheap and the easy. They would prefer to get a degree with as little amount of work as possible. They would prefer to do less work than more work. And the market would respond to that consumer demand, and they would give them the cheap and the easy. So he was kind of a pessimistic on all counts. He didn't really trust that the state could give a good education, didn't really even trust that they could train people very well. But he really didn't think either that markets could actually create a good educational service. Uh, he says several times, if markets did produce by some miracle a school that, that truly educated people, it would probably shut its doors after a few years because so few people would want that sort of education. In that view, he's quite similar to a number of the founding fathers. Thomas Jefferson is known for starting the University of Virginia, of course. Right. But at the time, I mean, they were talking about like fewer than one in a thousand kids that were going to be worthy of going to this university and attaining a higher education. Yeah. I mean, Jefferson's plan, as I recall, was everyone is entitled to a certain number of years of free education paid for by the state of Virginia. But basically, every year you move on, we kind of skim the cream from the top and they move on. And everyone else can go on if they want, but they'll have to pay for it. It's really the cream that will get that free education. And by the time you get to the university system, you're going to have a very small handful of ultra-capable people who are consuming the education there. Now, Nock, as you mentioned, was quite skeptical, not only of the government, but also of yeah. the market when it came to education. One of his students, and you'll have to help me on the pronunciation, Frank Chodorov? Uh, Chodorov. It I, is Chodorov. I, I hear it, Chodorov, Chodorov. I've okay. heard it a whole bunch of ways, so I, I don't think my guess would be a whole lot better than yours. Right. <laughs> Chodorov was somewhat more optimistic about the prospects of private yeah. education and a market for education. Yeah. Um, although he wasn't as supportive of government intervention in the form of a subsidy right. as, as freedom would later be. Right. Neither did he take Rothbard's laissez-faire approach. So he, right. he had a, a middle ground. Why did he prefer this middle ground to either direct government subsidies or complete non-intervention? Right. So Chodorov was very blatant in some of his essays that he was, as an anarchist like Nock was, he shared all of Nock's views on government in terms of being coercive rather than voluntary. For Nock, the goal would be a system where there's no government intervention at all. Everyone can afford education on their own or with charity or something like that or with donations, whatever that is. But really, he said, you know, we have a public system it's too far to go between the public system we have and a completely private system. So what we need to do is figure out a way for government to kind of subsidize the education for folks who really, really can't afford that education and stay away as much as possible from government intervening any more than that. So he really supported uh, a tax credit system, essentially, that allowed people to deduct tuition from their tax and I'm, I'm trying to think back to whether that even extended to a negative income tax. I don't think he brought that up that possibility, but the idea would be that whatever you pay in tuition would be tax-free. And he thought that alleviating a burden like that would open up education to a lot more folks. 
Now, you mentioned Ayn Rand, the famous or perhaps infamous novelist and yeah. uh, objectivist philosopher, mm-hmm. had relatively similar views, yeah. at least in terms of policy, but she gets there kind of at a, a bit of a different way. So what, yeah. what was uh, Ayn Rand about, and, and what does Isabel Patterson have to do with her? Oh, yeah, right. So, so Ayn Rand, when she came to the United States, this was several years after she came to the States, she had encountered a journalist named Isabel Patterson. And I'd have to look back at the book, but Patterson wrote for several you know, pretty famous outlets. And Patterson and Rand became pretty good friends. So Ayn Rand was obviously pro-market, pro-capitalist. So was Patterson. Patterson ended up writing a book called The God of the Machine, where she kind of explained society and, and market formations as kind of this machine that where each part kind of performs a function, but it doesn't have to be a centralized thing. And the more centralized it is, the more interference there is in each part performing its function. Now, Patterson and Rand also shared a passion for individualism. They really wanted an education system that was good for liberty, that was good for perpetuating liberal individualist values. And Patterson wrote a chapter in her book, God of the Machine, called Our Japanized Education System, where she talked about kind of the, the, what she saw as the dangers or pitfalls of what would then be known as progressive education. And she had in mind like Dewey and progressive education. And she said, you know, this thing is really collectivist. It teaches collectivist values. It teaches that kind of everyone is, I guess, subordinated to the group. It doesn't teach people to think individually. It doesn't teach people to act individually. And this is kind of a state mouthpiece. This is a way for the state to indoctrinate people into these kind of collectivist values. And Rand, when she ended up writing some essays, uh, she wrote, I think, two essays on education. She ended up kind of saying many of the same sorts of things in a very different way. So for Rand, it wasn't only the danger of the state providing education, it was a danger of the state will provide a, a sort of education that is collectivist, ostensibly, I guess, because the state wants collectivists, because collectivists make good supporters of the state, etc. But Rand also, I guess, accompanied all of that by a very strong support for natural rights. And she believed that one of the natural rights that people had was to educate their own children, like the family in some sense is kind of sacrosanct. The state shouldn't come between you and your your children, which was also a view supported by Shadarov and Albert J. Nock before. So it definitely wasn't a view that was um, original with her or unique to her. So it was kind of a natural rights argument, also kind of with the argument that, you know, the state is just almost inherently by its nature going to create very collectivist forms of education that teach a very collectivist doctrine. Now, one of the most fascinating figures that you profile in the mm. book, at least in my view, was a former teachers union negotiator yeah. who knew the government school system more intimately than nearly anyone, uh, certainly more than anybody else that's profiled in the book. So who was Myron Lieberman and what did he contribute to the conversation about government schooling and school choice? Yeah, if, if people who are supporters of school choice don't know Myron Lieberman's name, they should definitely look him up. He's got some great books. He's done some great work. So Myron Lieberman, his most famous book, I believe, was Public Education and Autopsy, which I believe was published some point in the 1980s. Myron Lieberman is, as you mentioned, a former labor negotiator. So he started his life in the 1940s as a public school teacher. He rose in the ranks, became at some point a labor negotiator working on behalf of brokering deals between states and unions. So he worked in several different states. 
And one of the things he started to realize by his own account was that there were often terms in these contracts that were really good for teachers, but at the expense of being good for consumers. So, you know, things about the limitations on the number of hours one can work, the times in which the school doors have to close, things like that. So he noticed that, you know, unions are doing their job in some sense in protecting teachers, and that's a legitimate thing to look out for. But oftentimes it was at the expense of improving educational quality, creating situations where students benefit, things like that. So he started looking into kind of economic analyses of teachers' unions and why is it that teachers' unions are often at odds with the consumers of their service? So he came across public choice research. So James Buchanan is, I think, the, the, the name that most people know in the public choice school, but he came across works by Manker Olson and other folks explaining why it is that unions often have disproportionate voice in any field that they're in and the sometimes deleterious effects that that can have. So he started writing about education, and he became more and more convinced when talking to people that markets and education would help to break up some of the, I guess, the strongholds that not only unions, but bureaucracies have in education, just like they have in other fields. So if you decentralize the space, you will limit the amount of influence that, let's say, teachers unions or bureaucracies have. So he ended up supporting not only a private school system, but he ended up supporting very explicitly the uh, presence of for-profit schools in that equation, which is interesting because not a lot of market libertarians have really gone there. I think you know people like Friedman were open to for-profit schools being in the market, but whether it was a matter of strategy or something like that, they always kind of kept very quiet on, okay, well let's not, you know, let's not clamor too much about for-profits versus non-profits. If anything, I think uh, Milton Friedman looked at them as functionally the same. Nonprofits, for-profits, it's all pretty similar. So for Myron Lieberman, one of his big concerns and one of the things he thought for-profit schools could do that nonprofits couldn't is they would be able to spend and they would be incented to spend a lot of money on things like research and development, a lot of money on things like advertisement, and they would also scale a lot better than nonprofits would. So if you can make a profit, you have a lot more money to reinvest and a lot more incentive to scale your service in a way that nonprofits don't always have. If you were to do another version of this book, a second edition, I would recommend yeah. adding Andrew Coulson. Oh, yeah, yeah. Dearly yeah, departed yeah. Of, uh, of the Cato Institute. He also, sure. first of all, was a critic of the voucher uh, and very much in favor of tax credit scholarships because of his concern about government intervention, Yeah. but also came to the conclusion like Lieberman Lieberman certainly was a major influence on Colson that for-profit schools would be necessary in order mm. to bring quality education to scale. Mm, yeah. His concern was that a lot of the private schools that we have in the current system are happy just being their small little community and have no real incentive to scale. He says, look, there, you know, there should be 10 Harvards, not just one, right? Right. Um, right? But there's no incentive. You know, If you're an elite institution, your incentive is to remain small. Yeah. He wanted a system where there was a strong incentive to serve as many people as possible. Yeah. Therefore, you kind of need that profit motive. Yeah, I should note also one of my favorite things about Myron Lieberman is that he was also very vocal in his somewhat opposition to charter schools. I don't think he was opposed to charter schools. I think he recognized that some choice is better than no choice. 
But his warning, especially towards the end of his life, when charters were just starting to kind of gain steam, his word of caution was, charters are not quite market-driven. They have some little small aspects of markets, but primarily they're still public schools. Mm -hmm. So charters will probably likely not do as well as advertised because they don't have the market forces. But they're just market enough that people, I guess subsequently like Diane Ravitch, Randy Weingarten, think people like that, have been able to say, see, charters don't work that well. Right. See, see what happens when you have markets in education? And Lieberman was very concerned that that would happen. And he was in some ways prescient uh, that that would happen because I think, you know, charters have, have supplied Ravitch and some other folks with a lot of ammunition that they can try to use towards uh, charter schools and really towards the market system in general. Or even for that matter, heavily regulated voucher programs. Right, right. That ended up not really living up to their their promise, but were highly constrained. Yeah. On Meyer, though, on Lieberman, one of the interesting things is that he comes at it sort of from a different direction than everyone else, in that mm -hmm. you've got Rothbard and uh, Albert J. Nock and others that they're coming at it from a, this is a matter of principle. Ayn Rand as well, mm -hmm. right? This These are natural rights. Right. Even Friedman is saying he's coming at it from a more, like you said, consequentialist or utilitarian economic perspective. But he's saying, I see in all these other fields that I'm very familiar with that it works best this way. And I'm taking what I've learned over yeah. here and I'm now going to apply it to education. Yeah, uh, that's the, right. The only one in your book that starts from the education system and says, hey, something is something is not working here. Yeah. I got to figure That's out right. what the problem is. That's right. Then he sort of comes to the market that way as opposed to starting at the market and applying it to education or starting from first principles. That's right. He starts with a problem that he's facing intimately and then works his way out of the problem by figuring out that markets are actually the solution. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And he he really, like I said, discovered kind of the public choice economist because he was thinking through this problem. He's, he says, you know, unions are doing certain things that they're supposed to do for teachers, but it's not really translating into what the gains for students. Why is it that, that they're opposed? And why is it that in all of these disputes, labor unions have a lot of power and teachers unions have a lot of power? So it was really him thinking through that issue. Why is it that the unions have so much power and why is it that there's no real incentive for teachers unions to really keep the consumer in mind? And that's that's what led him to the economics. And he was very honest and very nonpartisan about this is where I ended up. This isn't I wasn't seeking this goal. This is this is where I ended up. Now, over the last century, we've seen a variety of different flavors of market libertarianism, and, and certainly these debates are continuing today. Which of these thinkers or which flavor of market libertarianism do you think is probably the most prominent today? Well, I certainly think that you know Friedman, just in terms of his scope and influence, has had probably disproportionately the largest effect. As far as what kinds of, you know, what forms of school choice or market approach to education is, is going to gain the most steam. I'm wondering if it's the one that none of the figures in my book really foresaw, which is the education savings account. You know, a few people kind of hinted at that sort of possibility, but I think education savings accounts might end up being the, the one that, that a lot of folks just in the book, because it was 20th century, didn't really quite foresee happening. My concern with voucher programs and even charter programs let alone an entirely private system, is 
that in order for that to work, in some sense, the state has to allow it to work. And I just don't know if states are prepared on any large scale to do that. I mean, we've seen, you know, a voucher, statewide voucher system passed in Nevada, which has yet to get funding, I guess, because the government really hasn't committed towards funding it. Actually, they uh, just repealed it. I know that was they, the and they just Yeah, right. And and the the one in Arizona, of course, the universal education savings account system there is, has been under quite a bit of attack and was repealed. You partially repealed. So the one in Arizona is still functioning. It just the expansion was rolled back. Right. In Nevada, it was passed. So far, it's the only state, and yeah. as we're recording yeah. this in mid-June, the repeal hasn't been signed and is going to be subject yeah. to constitutional challenge for a variety of reasons. But uh, it's the only program that's ever been legislatively repealed, but there were zero students using it yeah. because, yeah. just a brief history here, after it was passed, there was a constitutional challenge. It mm, survived yeah. the challenge, but the court said it was not properly funded. Right. The legislature changed hands before they had an opportunity to fund it. So it's just been a program on the books for a few years without any funding. Uh, so it's yeah. easy to repeal a program if there's no kids that you actually have to rip a scholarship away from. Yeah, I think that uh, Friedman and Lieberman especially, because they were writing towards the later stages of the 20th century, so they saw some of these programs gain steam, but then they also saw some of the, the burgeoning reaction mm -hmm. to these programs. I think they, they both... I don't, I don't want to say they ended on a pessimistic note, because I don't think Friedman did, but they both realized that there were strong economic and political reasons why the inertia was against choice movements. You know, Friedman would talk about the very limited voucher programs in Alum Rock, and I think he saw the one in Milwaukee come about. And the problems that he saw when these things either shut down or, or never really expanded was that you're working largely against both a bureaucracy and possibly a teacher's union, et cetera, that stand to benefit politically and financially from keeping the current system in place and doing as well as possible. So as long as you see private schools through voucher system being a threat to those programs, the existing public school programs, it's going to be a, a very uphill battle. So it's, uh, I know that Lieberman became a little bit pessimistic, I think, towards the end of his writing career. I think Friedman always held out some hope, and maybe that was justified because voucher systems have gained a bit of steam, but it's always been an uphill battle. Yeah, and though I should note that although he didn't call it an education savings account, in an interview just a few years before he died in the early 2000s with Education Next, Friedman did refer to a partial voucher. You know, he said something to the effect of, why does a voucher have to go to a kid to go to a particular school? You know, maybe he's going to get math instruction from one education provider. He's going to get mm, language yeah. instruction from another education provider, science from a third. So they should have partial vouchers that students uh, or families can use at a variety of different providers. So, so that's yeah. essentially, is very prescient, definitely was the forerunner to what we now call the education savings account. Yeah, I think Theodore Sizer, one of the non-libertarian subchapters of my book, he had alluded to something similar because for Sizer, it was always key for educators to realize that schools are only one place that people get education. They get education in a whole lot of other places, and the government needs to in some ways open up educational funding to support all of these places that people might go and receive education. And if that means that you know you get instruction here for one thing and instruction there for another thing, there should be a way to do that. But he never really formalized that into a proposal. Uh, one of the figures that I didn't get a chance to really write about in my book, because it's the focus is on U.S., 
is uh, Ivan Illich, who was, I think, Russian theorist of education. He's most famous for the book, Deschooling Society. And he wrote in there and some other places of what he called edu credits, E-D-U slash credits. And when he describes them, they're very much education savings accounts. The government will pay you in some kind of, he didn't use the term credit card, but it was something like that. And you would deduct funds wherever you went as long as you could show that it was for an educational purpose. And that was the way you would support that. So he definitely was a visionary in terms of foreseeing something like ESAs. So Friedman has probably been the most successful, as you had mentioned, in terms of getting his ideas put into practice. I mean, certainly all of them are fighting from a minority position. There's still about 80% of students that are going to a district school, another Mm -hmm. almost 10 going to charter schools, which are a form of public school. So the school choice programs are still very small, but gaining steam, they are certainly increasing. And yet the critique of Rothbard and of Albert J. Nock still remains. And as you noted, even in their later lives, Friedman and Myron Lieberman were concerned about the power of the forces arrayed against school choice and how not only they might block school choice, but they might undermine school choice by over-regulating it. So how do we strike the right balance between government intervention to the extent it's necessary to subsidize education on the one hand, but government intervention interfering with how schools operate and and maybe getting too much power over the private sector on the other? Yeah, that's that's kind of like the golden question. Um, I feel like that ends up kind of being the theme of the book. So maybe other than really other than Murray Rothbard, who's really is ideologically pure, we need to keep the state out of education in all aspects. Everyone else in the book is kind of struggling with this question of, okay, well, we may need the government for something, whether it's funding or whether it's ensuring that schools are all of a certain quality or whatever it is. But how do we make it so that government can't overstep that particular boundary? So one of the criticisms that I thought was really interesting was Rothbard's criticism of Friedman, which was that, look, if you allow the government to pay for education for people, if you allow them to provide vouchers, in some sense, you now are giving them permission to accredit schools because they're paying for the schools. So they now have the right to to figure out what schools are acceptable to spend money at. And if you do that, in some sense, you now have government, at least indirectly, potentially even dictating curricular boundaries. Uh, and that's just really difficult. So I don't know if I have an answer for that, because everyone seems to draw the line differently. So I think Myron Lieberman is probably the most permissive. He wants to allow government even the ability to collect and house data so that consumers can go to this one clearing house and make a wise choice based on all this data. But even that is going to be difficult because that gives government in some ways an indirect freedom to say, well, you know, here's the curricular standards that you need to have and here's what we're measuring. So every school needs to measure these same things. So I I really think that with any intervention you have, there's always going to be a trade-off. So if you need government to do a particular thing, you have to figure out what you're willing to potentially give up for that. The less government intervention you have, the more pluralistic the marketplace might be. But of course, the downside might be that fewer people get educational funding. Maybe the very poor will no longer be able to afford education, and we don't want that. But when we have government funding the very poor for their education, now it gives the government permission to clamp and down a little bit on the diversity of schools. I guess it's a really long way to say that I'm really not sure there's an answer. I think every decision you make 
is going to come with just a trade-off. It certainly will. And I can say that there are some organizations, including EdChoice, that have been working to, in ESA systems, create an online platform where parents can get a variety of information about the effectiveness of the different education providers they're looking for, combined with user reviews. So sort of like the Amazon of education. And we know that the user reviews on Amazon and stuff, uh, they can be gamed, but so can U.S. News and World Report is gamed. Government rating systems are gamed. We don't have Utopia as an option. So the question is, among the available options, which one is the most likely to produce best results? Right. And so some combination of some basic metrics combined with user reviews might be the best that we can really hope for. Yeah. But certainly we'll have to continue muddling our way through. Sure. Now, which, if any, of the market libertarian critiques in your book, critiques of government schooling, I should say, do you find the most salient? You know, as as strange as it is, the more I thought about Albert J. Knox's criticism, I don't share his elitism. I don't share the idea that education is only something for a minority of people. I mean, it might turn out that way, but you can't possibly know who those people are, so you might as well make sure that you can give it to everyone. But his criticism was interesting in that if you allow education to be in the marketplace, as long as the market satisfies consumer demand, then if consumers demand you know, the least amount of work for the most credential, let's say, it's not inconceivable and, and maybe possible or, or likely that a lot of people will go for that sort of education and the market will offer it. I don't know if we can say this all the way, but I think in higher education, we've probably seen some glimpses of that. We've seen kind of a softening of academic requirements over time for a degree program. And it may be because people, as consumers, don't want to go into a situation where they have to work harder than they need to to get a degree. So I'm not quite sold on the criticism. I think um, there's reasons why I don't think that criticism will necessarily come to pass in a private system. But it's an interesting dilemma to think about. Is there anything else you wanted to add about your book or related topics? No, I think we've covered everything. It's a really fun book to write. It's really interesting to see a diverse array of defenses of markets and education and why people defend markets and education. And contrary to some of the critics of vouchers and school choice that try to tie it almost exclusively to segregation, you know, a lot of the folks in this book had very, very, very different aims for for markets and education. Well, certainly uh, interesting to read, and uh, I would highly recommend it to anyone, but especially uh, those who are interested in the intellectual history of educational choice. This is a must-read book, so thank you very much for writing it and for coming on the podcast. Cool. Thanks for having me. My guest today has been Dr. Kevin Curry-Knight. He is a teaching associate professor at East Carolina University. Again, his book is Education in the Marketplace. Thank you for listening to EdChoice Chats. Don't forget you can subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. You can follow us on social media at EdChoice and sign up for our email on our website, edchoice.org. Catch you next time. 